Happy Monday, guys. We are back with another edition of the DNVR Rams podcast presented by Breckenridge Brewery. As always, I'm your host, Justin Michael, and I'm super, super stoked about today's guest, Ed Werger of ESPN. If, if you follow NFL, if you you know watch ESPN, which most of you do if you listen to this podcast, you know who this man is. He's been covering the NFL for multiple decades. One of the true... Colorado media legends. He's from Longmont, graduated from the University of Northern Colorado. Just a really, really, really big figure in football. And it was awesome to get him on here. We, we didn't really talk a ton of CSU per se. We did talk Michael Gallup, of course. But it was fun to pick his brain on his Colorado roots, talk about some of his favorite places to go, talk about his experiences, you know, covering the NFL it was just really awesome to get him on this podcast. Before we jump into it, we have to shout out Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer of DNVR. Right now, it's crazy for so many local businesses. We've got to do our part, support our partners. It's a form of supporting us. I personally, I always go with the Avalanche Amber Ale. I've been drinking a lot of Strawberry Sky, but I love the Avalanche Amber Ale. Mountain Beach is always a classic. Go check out the farmhouse if, if you're down in town. It's really, really cool setup. It's socially distanced. It's really gorgeous for outside dining. Really just a fun experience overall. If you're more comfortable at home, you can still order curbside pickup from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. Just call 303-803-1380 from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. for your pickup order. Use the code DNVR and you can save five bucks. As always, use the Breck Beer Locator to find the closest liquor store near you with Breck Brews. Just takes all the inconvenience out of beer shopping. If you don't want to leave your house, you can get it delivered straight to you via the Drizzly app. Technology is changing the game. Yes, I love technology. Napoleon Dynamite. Gotta love it. Shout out to Breckenridge Brewery. They're always killing it, and we will continue to support them. That's what we gotta do. Shout out, Breck. We love them. You love them. Boom. All right, we've got a special guest today. I am joined by Ed Werder of ESPN, also host of the Doomsday Podcast. Ed, how has your summer been? Hopefully it hasn't been, you know, too chaotic with everything going on. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's been uh, a lot different NFL offseason um, and is going to be a very unique season in the history of football, assuming it gets played given the pandemic and uh, all of the issues that that's going to create related to access and so forth. If we're covering, if you're covering game or team. Um, so that's been frustrating, but the fact that they've put all these protocols in place and gotten to the point where they are uh, suggests that there's at least the possibility that they're going to make it through the season or at least start the season on time, which I think has been in question for a large majority of the off season. Uh, and on a personal level, it created an opportunity for my wife and I to uh, come back to Colorado and uh, spend some time with our family there. We have a house there um, and uh, we really enjoy it. We've had it for, I guess, three years now. And, uh, on a personal level, our, our son and his wife and our two grandkids both live in, in the Fort Collins area, and uh, the granddaughter's new to the family, so she's only four months old. So we were afforded an opportunity to engage with the family in a way that would ordinarily not be possible uh, to the extent it was. One of the things that I, that I found when I was researching was an interview that you did a couple of years back, and it talked about how getting laid off was obviously kind of a a whirlwind for you because you know you didn't really see it coming but one of the the nice aspects was that you did get to spend more time in Colorado and spend more time with your family where, where are your favorite spots in the state you know where are some of the spots you like to spend time in um well it's funny because my I grew up in Longmont um went to high school there played on the tennis team a couple of years did okay Went to University of Northern Colorado, graduated from there, which was a surprise to many. And, <laughs> um, and, and I met my wife in high school in Longmont. So uh, we've, we've always had a great appreciation for the great Colorado outdoors, the spectacular weather, the incredible scenery. Um, and so we're, but we never really went north. We never, uh, we would always go to Boulder or Denver. And so 
Fort Collins was a bit of a surprise to us. They were in our conference in high school, so we made visits up to compete against them. But other than that, we weren't really that familiar with it, but really love uh, the community there. And uh, so we, we generally are, are there. I, I love playing golf at the TPC Colorado to name drop uh, a location. Um, but we, we go to Vail quite a few times in the summer. Uh, we got into this thing when I was laid off that period of time we were talking about um, where we spent quite a bit of time there during the layoff. And we, my wife and I would pick a place and we would go hiking every Thursday. Um, and so there are a lot of great spots that we found doing that. Um, and, and we went, went whitewater rafting and we love to ride bikes. And so, um, I don't know that there's a lot of different places that we go, but we love, we love the mountain resort towns. We ski in a couple different places. Um, but we've enjoyed Vail, I guess, uh, outside of Fort Collins and the front range area, Vail's kind of been our go-to spot. I actually, I spent a couple days in Vail with my parents about a month ago. So I love it up there. It's, it's really underrated in the summer, to be honest. It's a little less busy. You don't get the ski traffic and you still get all the views. Yeah, it's, it's and you know, you, sit, you can get a place close enough to the river that with the windows open, you can hear the creek going by at night. And I love going into the village for dinner and window shopping. And we had little Henry, our, our five-year-old grandson, and he had his little Strider bike. And so he had a great time riding that around while we took the buses and so forth. So yeah, it's a great atmosphere. We, we went whitewater rafting out of there. We did Browns Canyon, which I think is class four rapids for the most part. Um, but yeah, it's just a beautiful place. And you're right, the Colorado mountain resorts are really underrated for the great value that they have in terms of, of summertime. Uh, one of the great trips we ever took, it was the greatest three-day weekend I describe it as, was we flew in there to Denver. We went to a Zach Brown Band concert uh, on Friday night. Saturday, we went skiing at A-Basin. This was like in May. Went skiing in A-Basin uh, and, and had snow falling on us as we were skiing. And the next day, I played the first round of golf at Red Sky Ranch outside. <laughs> That's a great three-day weekend right there. That's the most Colorado weekend I've ever heard in my entire life. Exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. Going back to, you know, your time at UNC, what, what kind of stands out most to you? What, you know, what sold you on UNC in the first place? And now, you know, looking back, what, what's the most significant about your time there? Well, I, I really narrowed my choices down to two colleges, uh, University of Colorado and Boulder, um, which is a beautiful campus. Um, and, but they didn't have, I mean, they've obviously had some great, you know, journalism alumna, alumnus from there. I mean, you know, Douglas Looney, Rick Riley, Michael Nisley of the Post, um, uh, Chris Fowler uh, from a broadcast point of view. But I didn't feel like they had uh, the same broadcast facilities at the time as were available in Greeley at, at Northern Colorado. And I also felt like I wanted to continue playing tennis competitively. Uh, and I felt like I could do that at UNC uh, better than I could compete at the level at, at CU. And as it turned out, I was sort of a fringe player. I played a few varsity matches my freshman year, um, but UNC actually had a better tennis team than CU. We, our, our team beat CU the year I, the year I played. So uh, I was mistaken in that scouting report. Um, but it was <laughs> kind of those two things that I wanted to play tennis. And I also felt like there was a better opportunity to get the experiences I wanted in terms of television studios, radio uh, opportunities at UNC. And I did do a, a scholarship or a, uh, an internship my final semester uh, down at, at what the time was Channel 9, was the ABC affiliate. And Jim Gray had just left. They just hired uh, Tom Green there. And so uh, I worked with Gary Cruz, Mike Dolan, and those guys. And uh, they afforded me a lot of great opportunities. Some of them were because I deserved them and some were because it was too early in the morning. They were too lazy to get out of bed. <laughs> hey, that's you got to make the most of your opportunities, right? <laughs> I, and I tried. I did. Experience is the most important thing. Did you get to be around Bronco's training camp at all back then? Yeah, I did. Uh, I worked for my local paper, the Longmont Daily Times Call, um, before and uh, and while I was going to school. And so I actually covered a couple of training camps. You no, know, not every day, but I covered a couple of training camps when they were at CSU. Uh, and then I covered, I, I did quite a bit of training camps out of Northern Colorado uh, during the, you know, Elway era in particular, uh, so yeah, I, I did visit their training 
camps there. And then they've, they've obviously now moved to Centennial to their uh, regular full-time facility. And I've, I've been there as well many, many times, but yeah, I, I visited all their training camps. I, I got to know Ed McCaffrey, uh, who's the new UNC coach uh, through the fact that he was, you know, on the Broncos teams with Elway. And uh, I, I, I obviously had that UNC connection and he's now the coach there. So uh, looking forward to seeing how he does there. What was your reaction when they hired him? Because it, I, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, they they definitely won PR, at least from all the hires locally. He was probably, you know, a more exciting hire than what CSU or CU got. So a win for the Bears. Yeah, at least until they play the games. But uh, he's very <laughs> enthusiastic. I, I was surprised just because, you know, he doesn't have any uh, experience at that level. Uh, but But that shouldn't disqualify the right person. And, you know, there are certain people who don't have that experience are, who are worth the risk. And I think this was a great risk-reward evaluation uh, by UNC to, to give him that opportunity, given how successful he's been, you know, at the high school level. Uh, and, and that success doesn't always translate uh, to college success at any level. Uh, but I had a chance to go up there and actually do an interview with him after he got hired. And, and I was really impressed. And I think he's used his experience as a player and as a high school coach uh, to great advantage. Now, this is going to be a unique situation. Obviously, nobody's been through uh, what everybody's going through now, and it'll be it'll be hardest on the coaches who don't have experience to try to figure it all out now. You know, confront these these unanticipated uh, situations. But uh, I think he knows what he's doing. I think he's looking for the right kind of player. Uh, I know he told me that you know, he won't offer a scholarship to, unless the player comes and visits campus. Now, obviously extenuating circumstances being what they are. I'm sure they've had to waive that policy for the time being just because of the COVID uh, precautions everybody's had to take. But um, I- I'll be surprised if he doesn't win big and-, and win early. Yeah, I think I think there'll be some uphill battles. Just, you know, there, there are actually some really good programs in the big sky. So you're competing against some teams that are pretty established. But I think, you know, his celebrity will help from a recruiting standpoint. I think you know, you might be able to pull some guys that were potentially going to go out of state and maybe they stick around instead. I'll, I'll always be rooting for him. I, I do wonder if maybe they would have been better sticking off to Division Two rather than making the jump to the FCS. Do you have an opinion on that? I mean, not, not anything that I'm ardent about, but I mean, I went to a game when they played CU two or three years ago uh, at Folsom Field and Quite honestly, UNC should have been ahead in the third quarter. It was a missed throw, uh, you know, a long touchdown pass opportunity that they failed to convert on. And had they done that, they'd have been in the game late in the second half. So uh, I thought they competed actually pretty well against a much more established, formidable program at Colorado than some of those that they'll face uh, in, in the big sky that you mentioned. Are, do you consider yourself a college football fan or do you get, you know, too much football given what you do for a living? Well, it's not too much football. It's that it's inconvenient for me um, to really spend a lot of time on college football just because the games are typically played on a Saturday and that's the day that I'm either traveling to my game and then meeting with coaches and players and putting my materials together for the next day uh, that I'm going to broadcast for our shows on ESPN um, or I'm home doing those same sorts of things. So it's just not a day where I have a lot of time uh, to commit to college football. But I'll, I mean, when I'm done, I'll watch a game or I know I thought Johnny Manziel was one of the most fascinating college players ever. And if, if Texas A&M was, could be seen, their game could be play, seen wherever I was, I made a point to try to watch that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just kind of incompatible with my, my, my assignments covering the NFL for ESPN. That totally makes sense. Were were you surprised at all, you know, going out, you've been all over the country from, from what I gather, you know, you worked in Orlando, you worked in Boulder, <laughs> multiple newspapers in Dallas. No, I just mean, <laughs> you, you live in Texas where college football is obviously a massive product. Given that you experienced, you know, college football at a smaller scale, was it kind of interesting when you got out there to see just how obsessed everybody was with college football? Well, it's not just college football. It's like high school football is, you know, these the stadiums that these teams play in are, are like they're, they're tens of millions of dollars that they invest in these stadiums. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the commitment is huge. 
from a fan point of view. And obviously, you know, the Texas schools have not fared that well since they moved to the SEC, which is obviously, I, I would argue, the best conference in, in college football. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's everything you would expect Texas college and high school football to be, uh, which is on a far bigger scale than anything you could imagine in Colorado. Um, but I also remember when the buffs were as good as there was in the entire country. And that was a pretty exciting time to be, uh, covering games. Cause that was another place I worked was in Boulder. Um, and, and I never quite honestly, I didn't, I never pictured myself working in Dallas. I mean, I loved the, the newspaper here. The Dallas morning news was one of the most prestigious papers in the country. Um, but I really, you know, I, I read the Denver post and I was a Colorado guy and I fully expected to spend my whole career uh, in that area if that was possible. At the same time, I wanted to be able to fulfill uh, whatever talent I had and, and whatever and pursue whatever opportunities existed out there. And so uh, even though I was married young and we had kids young, um, I was fortunate that we were flexible enough to, to pursue those objectives where, wherever that led. And like you stated, it led to a lot of different places. Where, where were some of your favorite places to work, either just because you enjoyed living there or, you know, you enjoyed the experiences that you got to cover out there? What were some of your favorite spots? Um, well, I, I think the move to the Dallas market was, you know, the most significant thing I did. Um, and it, there's a little bit of a funny story in that at the time I was in Boulder and I was trying, I'd spent five years in Boulder and I, I really wanted to move on to the next place, the next, the next, I wanted to be on a big Metro daily, even though we covered the Broncos that way. Um, we weren't that. And I wanted that if I could, if I could achieve it. And so I was, I was meeting with the Denver post. And I had kind of secretly been hired by the Denver post. The problem in my mind was there was a lot of upheaval and uncertainty at the time. And they were going through a sports editor like every six months. And I worried that by the time, so they wouldn't let me start right away. They wanted to, I think it was May they hired me and they didn't want me to start until July, until football actually started. Um, and I was a little concerned that by the time my start date arrived, the guy who hired me wouldn't be in charge anymore. <laughs> and, and so uh, because of my work with some of the reporters at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, when the Tony Dorsett trade was being made between the Broncos and the Cowboys, I was kind of helping them on the Denver end and they were helping me on the Dallas end. They, were, they wound up recommending me for an opening covering the Cowboys. And so really my mindset in, in taking the interview here was to try to force Den the Denver Post to hire me sooner. And I really didn't come here thinking I was going to work here. Um, but it was a for fortuitous timing from, this, from the standpoint of I wasn't, if I took the job covering the Cowboys, I wasn't going to be up against 30 years of relationships between the writers at the D Dallas Morning News uh, and myself, because like, Jerry Jones was a new owner. Jimmy Johnson was a first-year coach. Troy Aikman was new to the team. So if you were going to make that move now, it struck me was the right time to do it. And I actually turned down the Fort Worth Star-Telegram uh, Cowboys beat job multiple times, but they kept offering me more money to reconsider. And, and it's funny because like for five years, I'd been trying to move on and I couldn't get out. And now all of a sudden, I can go to either of two places um, and if I come to Texas, I'm turning down the place I always wanted most to work at, the Denver Post. But ultimately, I saw that uh, moving to Texas as being the better opportunity. Uh, and it proved to be, you know, exactly that. I mean, uh, covering the Cowboys is is unlike any other beat in terms of the profile that it creates. The storylines were ridiculous, the success of the team and, the you know, the partnership between Jimmy and Jerry and how that broke up and you know, having a front row seat to that whole thing sort of made my career and gave me the opportunity to transition to television uh, with CNN Sports Illustrated and then eventually with, uh, with ESPN. Back to the pod in just a second. But first, everyone's favorite time of year is right around the corner. That's right. Football is about to be back and to celebrate football's 101st anniversary, DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, putting new users in the center of the action with a free $101 bet when they place a bet on the Kansas City versus Houston Thursday night game. 
This touchdown of a deal is only available for 101 hours, so get in on the action now. You heard us right. DraftKings is giving all new users a free bet of $101 once they sign up and place a bet of $10 or more on the Kansas City versus Houston game. If you're new to DraftKings Sportsbook, head to the app now and check out all that they have to offer, including great promotions, odds boosts, and all kinds of fun stuff. DraftKings Sportsbook is safe, secure, and reliable, and located right here in the United States, so it's easy to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. Gotta love that. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code DNVR to get a free $101 bet to use once you place a bet on the first football game of the season. That promo code DNVR to get your free $101 bet. For a limited time, only a DraftKings Sportsbook must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Other terms and conditions and restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Did you notice that your relationship with the organization, did it change at all after some of that Jimmy Johnson stuff or, you know, versus like when you're reporting on, you know, the Terrell Owens situation and talking about everything that's going on behind the scenes, do you notice the Cowboys, does, does it change for you at all? Or are you so, are you so established on that beat at this point that it all just kind of mellows out with the highs and lows? Well, I was... You know, when the whole Jimmy and Jerry thing happened, I was at the Dallas Morning News. Um, and at the time, like, you were either a Jerry guy or you were a Jimmy guy, you know. In the newspaper, I, I you know, walked the line. Uh, I wasn't really allowed to editorialize because I wasn't a columnist. I was a beat writer. And we kind of adhered to the traditional standards and, and roles, which is no more, by the way. Um, but obviously, you did a lot of talk radio. And, and, and they heard things. And so they knew I was a Jimmy guy. And, and and obviously, unfortunately for me, Jimmy's the one who's leaving. The owner's staying. The coach is going. If one of the two is going, um, but you know, I, I wound up documenting the whole uh, breakup. And like, it's never happened before that a guy who's just won two Super Bowls uh, for the most visible franchise in the NFL is forced to leave the organization because of a disagreement, a personality conflict with the owner of the team. Um, so I covered that whole thing. You're right. I also covered for TV the Terrell Owens situation, which made me, again, wildly unpopular with Jerry Jones. Both of those things made me wildly unpopular, fortunately temporary with Jerry. Um, but, you know, I think, he, I think he recognizes, you know, and, and, and understands uh, objectivity. Um, he understands that, that while he might not like it, uh, the facts sometimes don't represent him well, that they are still the facts. And he, he knew that I was not leaving uh, as much as he may have tried to make that a reality. <laughs> um, it just, it wasn't entirely possible, but I've had him stick his finger in my chest and, you know, uh, tell me that I tried to hurt his team and on the Terrell Owens thing and, and ask the PR director, you know, th that night at the game, why I was still being credentials for, to cover the team. And that's just part, that's just part of what we do. Like, you know, if, if you're ingratiated to the team, then you're probably not servicing the fans in, in the most accurate way possible. Uh, they have their own media staff if they want to do that. That's not what I do. Um, so, yeah, there, there have been times where there was conflict and I didn't get a lot of cooperation. And there were, quite honestly, times where, you know, Jerry and I would have a conversation over something and he would express his, his, his pointed opinion about his disdain for what it is I wrote or said or whatever and, and vowed that, you know, he was going to be magnanimous about it and not punish me. And then he lied and he did try to punish me uh, with a story he planted somewhere else. So, uh, but that's just, that's just part of the job. And uh, you got to be big enough to deal with those sort of, you know, adversities and conflicts. And uh, I try to do it, you know, face to face and always let people know, you know, whatever I write, whatever I say, whatever I report, certainly open to interpretation. If you don't think you're represented fairly, I'll be out there tomorrow and you can, we, you, we can have a conversation about that. I prefer we do it publicly, but if you want to do it public, uh, privately, but if you want to do it publicly, then we'll do it that way. That makes sense. What looking at him from, from the outside, Jerry Jones is obviously kind of a, a polarizing figure. What do you view his legacy as, you know, do, when it's all said and done, it, I, I can't really, you can't really deny his impact on the game, right? Is that, that's the reason he's in the hall of fame. Um, and he's, and he's in the hall of fame before his coach who won 
you know, two Super Bowls. So that's significant to me. Um, yeah, he, he has been a pioneer in the NFL, especially as it relates to business. Um, you know, he, he changed uh, the, the television revenue equation uh, in a massive way by bringing in Fox as an NFL broadcasting partner at a time very early on in his um, tenure as an owner in the NFL. Uh, he got involved in the broadcast committee with Patrick Bowlin, the Broncos owner. Uh, and at a time when most people thought the NFL was going to take a hit and lose revenue, they actually got a far better deal because they got Fox to come in. Um, he, he, he obviously hasn't always gone with the league in terms of sponsorships, partnerships, and so forth like that. He's been a big part of getting new stadiums built in the NFL and making people realize the kind of revenue that these things can generate as much as they may cost. Um, he did that here. He got a Super Bowl to North Texas. He was the owner and general manager of three Super Bowl championship teams. But I think locally, most people are frustrated by Jerry Jones and they regard him as an egomaniac who, you know, views his desire to be the coach and to influence football decisions in a way that he shouldn't at the expense of the team. Um, and can you be a great owner if you tolerate a poor general manager and the poor general manager is you. Uh, there's just never been the proper accountability uh, uh, to the owner from the general manager because they're the same guy. Um, so I, I think that's his local legacy. His local legacy is going to be different, I think, than his national legacy will be. I mean, he's always going to be regarded as sort of a big personality, egomaniacal sort of guy. Um, but he knows how to make money. He's been hugely successful in business and his football teams generally have been competitive and interesting, if nothing else. I will always say, I, and I've said this all the time because of what happened with Jimmy Johnson, th this franchise is never ever going to win as many Super Bowls as it should have because Jimmy should have been the coach here longer than he was. And if he had been the coach here longer than he was given the young talent that they had, I think they would have won more Super Bowls than they did in the interim with Barry Switzer taking over, even though he won one and then everything that happened after that. How do you, do you, do you think things will change at all? Bringing Mike McCartney over just given, you know, he's a guy who historically has also had a lot of power over the teams that he has controlled. Now you're bringing him in to deal with him and Jerry in the same room. It just kind of seems like a clash of Titans. Well, it's, it's a dizzying change for, for Mike McCarthy because you know, for his 13 years in Green Bay, he kind of presided over the only franchise that doesn't really have an owner. They don't have an owner. They have multiple or publicly owned. So he's accountable to the president of the team and the shareholders, but he doesn't have a particular person in the ownership role, you know, overseeing the entire operation and second guessing all of his decisions and trying to make a contribution in personnel and so forth like he has here. That being said, I'm, I, I find I find it sort of remarkable that we have seen that maybe Mike McCarthy is regarded by Jerry because he's won a Super Bowl ring in a way that most other coaches who have been here since Jimmy Johnson are not or have not. Been. Um, I think there are a couple of, of examples. And the first of those is that Jason Witten was one of the you know, he's one of the longest tenured players in the history of the organization, one of the most accomplished players, a surefire Hall of Famer. He's finishing his career with the Las Vegas Raiders. That would not have happened if Jerry had made the decision instead of Mike McCarthy. They did not sign Earl Thomas last week when he was released, even though he's a potential Hall of Fame player, a likely Hall of Fame player, um, uh, a guy who's been very public about his interest in playing for the Cowboys, plays a, a position of weakness for this franchise and is available at a discounted price. I think Jerry would have been all over that. And Mike McCarthy has indicated he, he's a little concerned about the fact he was released for conduct detrimental to his team by the, by the Ravens. And he said, to me, the most important thing in bringing a player in from another organization is how does he fit in your locker room? And so I think there was an apparent difference of an opinion on that. And for now, at least, McCarthy seems to have won that. And then last night they had a scrimmage, right? And Jerry intended it to be a locally, nationally televised streaming and televised live spectacle. And Mike McCarthy 
didn't allow any all 22 video. He didn't allow players to wear numbers or names on their jerseys so that uh, they were indistinguishable one from the other because he didn't want the tape to get out. And when they make their cut later this week, you know, to be disadvantaged in a way that, well, nobody else has seen, nobody else has played on television. So why should we play on television, you know, in our own stadium and let everybody see our young players that, you know, we're going to cut that we want to bring back. And so that's another example to me of McCarthy prevailing in a football situation where maybe other coaches wouldn't have done that. And maybe they wouldn't have even made the argument to Jerry, much less made a convincing argument that allowed them to win the day. That's almost like a college football approach in terms of blacking out everything that happens in practice. I'll I'll be interested to see how much of that continues throughout the season versus, you know, you know, Jerry loves the attention. So I I don't think it'll be a situation where it goes away completely, but you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they just, you know, hold things back a little bit more. Well, I think, um, it's going to be a unique season and McCarthy is, is probably going to benefit from it in this way. It's mostly worked to his detriment to this point, because as you know, first year coaches are normally afforded, you know, extra off season. They start their off season practices earlier. The Cowboys were going to play five preseason games instead of four. And now they played none. So his staff has seen nobody in a game situation. Like even now they play in less than two weeks. Um, but the one thing that this is going to do for him, in all likelihood, it's going to eliminate the situation after every game where Jerry Jones comes out of the locker room and stands between the media and the locker room. And during the same time, the coach is down the hall doing his press conference. Jerry is entertaining every topic the media wants to ask him about, which is updating injuries, evaluating performance, coaching decisions. I mean, it's all there. And so because of the pandemic and because everything's going to be done virtually, at least at the start of the season, there's not going to be any face-to-face interviews. I don't know how, what Jerry's going to do, but I know he's not going to stand outside the locker room in front of a hundred people holding microphones and cameras and entertain the topic du jour. So it'll be interesting to see if he finds another outlet for that beyond his own radio shows, but something that allows his opinion to filter out uh, or, his, or his opinions to be shared with the public in the immediate aftermath of a game. Maybe he'll do a Zoom call after a game. I wouldn't rule it out. I know before they went to the first Super Bowl, you know, this was back when, hey, you're the owner, and there's the owner, and there's the coach, and there's no nothing in between. Like, the coach handles the team and, the, and what's on the field, and the owner handles everything else. And, and we asked Jerry, you know, if he was going to talk every day at that first Super Bowl they were going to, and he said, I don't know, what do the other general managers do? And sure enough, Jerry was available every day. He had his own table, you know, which that just didn't happen, especially back then. He just seems like such an interesting guy. I, I would love to be able to spend time with him someday just to I'd take it all in. He, he almost seems like a movie character in some regards. <laughs> but one of the guys I, I definitely wanted to pick your brain on, a guy that's really popular here locally is Michael Gallup. And... You know, that there's some concern among CSU fans that with the arrival of CeeDee Lamb, Michael Gallup is potentially going to get overshadowed. What do you think about that? And maybe does, does Gallup hold a little bit of an advantage given that there is no preseason and, and Lamb isn't going to get those reps? Well, based on everything I've seen, CeeDee Lamb is going to play a lot uh, as a rookie. Now, uh, you should know, and you probably do, that the fact they drafted him at 17 is at all no reflection at all on any level of dissatisfaction with Michael Gallup. Uh, it was totally an opportunistic decision. Uh, they had C.D. Lamb ranked as the fourth best player on their board, and he was available at 17. And, and, and I think that in all likelihood, if he does what I expect the first two years of his career in the NFL – Uh, I think he's probably going to affect Amari Cooper's future with the Cowboys more than he is Michael Gallup's because Amari Cooper's the second highest paid receiver in football, but the Cowboys have structured the deal. So they're out of the guarantees after two years, we assume Michael Gallup's going to get a new contract after this year. uh, And it's not going to be at that same level that Amari Cooper commanded because Amari Cooper uh, was also brilliant in creating leverage for himself because he knew they could only franchise tag either he or Dak Prescott and that it was going to be the quarterback and not the receiver. And so he actually created an opportunity to go out in free agency. 
knowing the Cowboys had already invested a number one pick and acquiring him in the trade with the Raiders. And so the Cowboys had to pay to justify the trade, and he's important to their team. But CeeDee Lamb is going to play a lot, and, and that's going to not really affect Michael Gallup's opportunities, I don't think, even though I would say Gallup is probably the number three receiver uh, his experience in the offense, his, the trust relationship he has with Dak Prescott will probably prevail early on. And even more important than that is Mike McCarthy plays three receivers more than almost any coach in football. His last five years in Green Bay, I think only Sean McVay with the Rams ran more three-receiver looks than, than he did in Green Bay. And with the, the talent that they have at the receiver position now, you have to assume he's only going to be driven more to do that. Um, I think the player that you have to ask about, is he going to get enough touches? Is Ezekiel Elliott. Um, Interesting. Because McCarthy's never had a running back uh, like him, and he's never really fed a running back in his offense. He's always been very quarterback-oriented. But uh, they love Michael Gallup. You know, my, uh, Mike McCarthy said uh, last week that he totally thinks Gallup is a number one receiver. Uh, he talked about what an impression Gallup made on him, that he wasn't a player he knew a lot about. And then when he started watching the film, uh, of his of his season last year when he went over a thousand yards he was impressed in a way that he hadn't expected to be impressed uh, and he's continued to do that uh, during training camp now he's not perfect right he 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 led the NFL in drops last year with 16 and since he came mm-hmm. to the league he's got 21 only you know Julian Edelman has more so he's got to be more consistent um, but I think there are going to be plenty of opportunities uh, for Michael Gallup and I think he has a big future here in Dallas even though they spent the number 17 pick on a, on CD lamb and he's going to play early in his career. You know, they, they invested, I believe it was a third round pick in Michael Gallup. So it's not like he was a a seventh round guy or an undrafted free agent or something, but do do you think that's maybe a, a similar sentiment amongst Cowboy fans is just being pleasantly surprised or maybe the season that he had last year was, just a, a little bit more explosive, a little bit more productive than, than people thought his ceiling could be. Yeah. Well, and part of it was, you know, there were, I don't think anybody expected Dak Prescott to evolve uh, as a passer the way he has through four years. I mean, two, you know, two years into the league, nobody thought this guy was going to challenge Tony Romo's, you know, Cowboys single season passing record game within a yard of it last year. Um, and now he's got even better weapons. So uh, yeah, obviously opportunities were created for Michael Gallup because of the presence of Zeke Elliott in the running game, um, and defenses are threatened by him and want to, you know, he's their number one objective. And then Amari Cooper draws a lot of coverage. So Michael Gallup took advantage of, of a lot of great one-on-one opportunities. He's going to get those again, even more. Um, and, and now he's got a coach who's not as run oriented as his previous coach, Jason Garrett was. So, uh, I, I expect Michael Gallup will have a good season again, uh, providing he doesn't get hurt. He's had he had a, a knee injury at one point last year, but you know, among third round picks, there's the only guy who produced more in his second NFL season who was a receiver chosen in the third round is Mike Wallace, um, and and there have been some good receivers taken in the third round in the NFL. I mean, you're talking about, you know. T.Y. Hilton is a guy who comes to mind. Terrell Owens was a third-round draft pick. Kenny Galloway. Galladay was a third-round pick. So that's a pretty impressive list um, that, that he's accomplished. And, and what, only two, two other Cowboys in their second seasons had 1,000-yard uh, receiving seasons, and that was uh, Drew Pearson and Bob Hayes. So uh, he's, he's put himself in, in pretty uh, astonishing company early in his career. Is he a player that's popular with the fans at all in terms of is is he, you know, active in the community? He was he was a really popular guy when he was at CSU, just, you know, very active with the fans, always willing to do the, you know, the engagement opportunities, whether it was going to a children's hospital or, you know, something like that. Is, is he a guy that's made an impact at all like that? Yeah, we, obviously, when you're when you're on a team like this and, and you have Dak Prescott and you have... Um, you know, Amari Cooper and Ezekiel Elliott, Demarcus Lawrence, um, you know, you've got a lot of, of high profile guys. And so he's not ascended to that level. Um, obviously there was a lot of compassion for him locally. Um, when he lost his brother after the Redskins game, 
And, uh, you know, that kind of struck a bond between him and Dak this offseason because Dak lost his one of his brothers this offseason. And, and Michael was somebody who could relate to that. And um, so I think that strengthened the relationship between uh, Michael and Dak. But he's not really been a high profile, big commercial sort of guy. What he does in the community is is not something I know a lot about. Um, but I'm sure he does his share. But he's just kind of a, I think he's regarded as a, a, a good citizen, uh, you know, a pro's pro, somebody that uh, people in the locker room have a lot of respect for and is probably a better player than most people in the NFL realize. It sounds like his his greatest strength, at least going into this season, is probably going to be that relationship he has with Dak Prescott, though. is, is that Would you agree with that? I, I don't think that Dak Prescott hesitates to throw him a ball in any situation. Um, and he, and he probably stretches the field better than, than anybody. Uh, he's certainly better at that than Amari Cooper, but Amari is such a great route runner. And, um, he's, he, he, he is so unique with his second step creating separation on a consistent basis. You know, he's not the run after the catch guy, uh, that some players are, uh, that I think, um, that, that Michael has proven to be early in his career and that CeeDee Lamb is going to be to even a greater extent. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any situation. And I think we've seen that on the field in games where, uh, you know, they're not afraid to throw a football to Michael Gallup in any situation, uh, even with the season on the line in Philadelphia. I think their biggest problem was uh, there were four games last year where Dak Prescott and the Cowboys played on the road and Dak didn't have a touchdown pass in any of those games. And too many of those games came late in the year when they were on the road against good defenses like Chicago, New England, home against Buffalo, uh, where those teams were able to shut down Amari Cooper. And I don't think that's going to happen anymore. I think Dak Prescott is going to have options now, whether it's Michael Gallup or CeeDee Lamb or Zeke Elliott in the in the passing game, uh, where they're not going to be as dependent on Amari Cooper as they were in those important games against good defenses and the best corners in football last year. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but I, I, I'm curious. I know you haven't had a chance to see them in action like you normally have since there hasn't been a preseason. But going into the year, what does your gut say about the Dallas Cowboys? Do you, you know, do you view them as a Super Bowl contender, a team that's potentially going to, you know, be at the top of the NFC or, or is there still some work that needs to be done there? Well, I mean, we, we think that all the time, right? We think that almost every year. Um, and, and they have had a great collection of talent for quite some time. Uh, I mean, they've, they had Tony Romo for 10 years as a starter. They've had Dak Prescott, who's done some incredible things early in his career that are unprecedented among quarterbacks drafted in the fourth round, like he was who come in and start right away. Uh, and they've won, but they haven't been able to win in the postseason, and, and that's where they need uh, to achieve some things to dispel, you know, the fact that they're, they're, they're not as good as their talent would suggest. And that's part of the making the coaching change. Um, I think they expect to get more out of their coaching staff than they did under Jason Garrett. Now, the problem I have with it is, I think these coaching staffs that are first-year groups are really disadvantaged early in the season. You know, because, like I said, they, they have not seen their players tackle, play at game speed under game circumstances. Um, so I think that's a huge disadvantage, and especially in the NFC East where everybody's changed coaches except for the Eagles, who have won the division last year and won the division's most recent Super Bowl. So I think Doug Peterson has one of the biggest advantages in the entire NFL and certainly in the NFC in that they have a lot of continuity that the Cowboys don't have. But do the Cowboys have enough talent to, to contend for the Super Bowl? Yeah. I mean, at, at virtually every position. I, I, think only, I think their biggest weakness is in the secondary. And maybe Trayvon Diggs, their second-round pick, is good enough to he replaces Byron Jones, and, and they overcome that. Maybe their pass rush is better. Um, with Everson Griffin and Alden Smith coming back from, you know, his uh, expulsion from the NFL for five years. Um, but but they're new coaches. I think that's going to take some time. Uh, and they play some tough games early. They're at the Rams week one. Then they're home against the Falcons. Then they're at Seattle. Now, playing in Seattle, they don't have to face the crowd, 
right? But it's a huge disadvantage to these coaches not to have seen their players and be able to evaluate them in game circumstances across the board. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, it, I can't imagine Washington or the Giants contending in the division. So you're starting off with, it's a two-team race, but it was a two-team race last year. And the other team, the Eagles, suffered an incredible number of in- injuries. And the Cowboys went there week 16 with a chance to win the division. They got beat because they couldn't score. And uh, so, yeah, they're, they got to prove it to me still, but they're capable of proving it with the talent that they have. This is kind of a, a general question, and, and then I'll let you go. Do you, do you think that early in the season, given that there has not been a lot of contact, given that you didn't have preseason, do you think that's going to benefit the offense or defense either way? Or do you think it's maybe not even going to have that big of an impact? I think it's going to result in some poor play early on, which is typical in the NFL. We always complain about that, right? The, the training camps have been changed. They can't do, you know, double day practices. There's little or no contact. The best players don't play in the entire preseason, but they play some, Like They play enough to know what it's like to get hit. And I think the receivers and the running backs in this league, I think there are going to be some fumbles early in, in the season that wouldn't ordinarily happen because they're not conditioned to being hit. They haven't been hit in nine months. Um, and I think there are probably going to be some special teams breakdowns that are going to create some big plays in that regard. And I think defensively, the same thing could happen. I think there'll be big plays because nobody's tackled. You know, none of these players have been tackling. And tackling is not good to begin with in the NFL. And when you don't work on it at all, and now all of a sudden guys are running faster than you're used to when you're thudding them up in practice, uh, I think all of that's going to have an effect on the quality of the games. And I think that in, I think there'll be more turnovers, and I think there'll be more big plays early on. Are you surprised at all that, that the NFL is, is actually you know, going to start, just given everything that's happened over the last couple of months? Well, I give them a lot of credit for you know, uh, all that they've invested in, in the health of the players. And I, I think they've taken every safeguard. I know there was a lot of criticism of, hey, they've had all this time to watch baseball and basketball, and you know, yet they still have these infection rates, and, 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 and they, they did nothing with the time, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, they've, they've done like 200,000 COVID tests in the NFL uh, since camps began open. And so they've learned a lot from that. And I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, in fact, we were we had a conference call today with Dr. Alan Sills, who's the chief medical director and is overseeing uh, all these protocols and testing. And I asked him, so when are players going to be tested for the final time before a game? And when's the latest those results will be known? And they still haven't determined that. You know, they had that issue the other day. Uh, a week ago Sunday, uh, where, what, eight or nine teams had uh, 60 players test positive. Well, that was a great learning exercise for them. What if this happens week one? What are we going to do? And so I think they've done a great job to this point. I think it becomes more difficult as players leave the bubbles that the teams have tried to create. Some of the teams have tried to create during training camp. Um, and staying in the hotels and, and, and that sort of thing. It's going to be diff- more difficult when they get out. And people just are going to revert to their normal way of living at some point. And that poses a threat and a danger to the continuation of NFL games. But I, I, I give them a lot high marks for what they've tried to do and for getting to this point. Like everything they've done has really been done on time. Now they've eliminated some things. But they, they held the draft. They held free agency when people thought it was wrong and couldn't happen, and they did it, and they did it well. And it looks like they're going to start their season on time. Whether they finish on time or they finish without interruption, interruption remains to be seen. But if, the, you know, and, and J.C. Treader, uh, the president of the NFLPA Player Association, sent out an email today, you know, or a t- tweet reminding players to be vigilant. Don't let up now. Like, if we're going to play the season, this mindset has to continue for another five months. So keep, you know, be mindful of what's gotten us to this point, the success we've had. They need to be able to maintain that. And I don't know if they can, but I think it's pretty remarkable that we've gotten to the point where we expect them to play week one. Oh, definitely. I mean, I would say in in May and June, I pretty much had, you know, convinced myself or rationalized to myself, you know, there's there's just not going to be NFL football this fall. Get in that mindset. You're going to hate it. And then, you know, July came around and it was like, oh, maybe it's going to work out. And now, you know, it seems like it's going to at least happen. So, And then major conferences in college football were canceling, right? And then we were yeah. like, 
geez, I mean, can what's the NFL? How can the NFL possibly persevere through all this in a way that colleges can't? But obviously, a college, you know, controlling athletes on a college campus is a whole different thing than controlling professional athletes who are a little older and we hope use better judgment. They don't always. Sometimes <laughs> the college is exercise far more uh, better adult judgment than than their NFL contemporaries. But uh, I think they need to be reminded. I think they are reminded every time they go to their facility. That being said. It, it, it seems impossible to, to think that nothing of major significance is going to happen in that regard during the season. Definitely. Well, Ed, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but before you go, I just, I want to thank you again for coming on. You've, you know, you've always been an idol of mine growing up in Colorado and following media, you know, there's you and, and you know, guys like Chris Fowler and seeing people that had made it even Schefter, you know, with what he did at the post. So it's just a kick to have you on here. I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm still kind of just in shock that you agreed to do it. So but thank well, you. Yeah. No, I follow you on Twitter and uh, I respect what you've achieved already. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to interact with you on a personal level. And uh, thank you for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. One big final thank you to Ed for coming on today's podcast. It was honestly just such an amazing experience for me as you know, an up and coming person in the sports media world to, to get to pick his brain was really just a lot of fun. So really, really appreciative of him for coming on. We're going to have more fun guests on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. It's, it's going to be a weird fall with no CSU football, but we're going to make the most of it. Before we go, I want to acknowledge one more partner and that is MSU Denver Online. MSU Denver Online puts a dynamic education at your fingertips without forcing you to decide between earning a degree and living your life. MSU Denver is the Colorado institution providing rigorous and affordable online programs taught by professors who bring the real world into the classroom. MSU Denver graduates use their relevant degrees to land coveted jobs. Some of our very own staff members at DNVR are taking MSU Denver Online classes this summer, Allie and Harrison, They both have great things to say about it. If you're not living that college experience at other institutions, then MSU Denver Online is an amazing opportunity. One of MSU's mantras is learn to lead the change. MSU Denver services Denver and is a steward of the community. They believe in value without compromise, excellent education, professors who care about you, and formats that fit your life. It's a teaching institution. This means it will take you in your career. The majority of MSU Denver graduates stay in Denver, and therefore, you can begin your network now. Spend your gap year with MSU Denver Online. Continue the education.